From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 86. This is a little bit of a non-traditional guest relative to the baseball players and orthopedic surgeons and sports scientists and coaches that we've had in the past. This is actually a retired player who's in the working world now. And what I think is going to be really cool about this episode is it's going to be all about hindsight. What are the things that he might have done different on his developmental path um, as it worked through the high school ranks and through the college ranks? How could he have been different around his teammates? What are the lessons that he learned? I think it'll be particularly compelling for current players who are going through some of the things that he went through, as well as for parents and kids that are going through the college recruiting process. He's a really articulate guy, one of the longest tenured CSP athletes, and someone who's as much of a resource as he is a friend nowadays. Um, I, I talk to him regularly about everything that's going on in the world, and he just has a really good perspective on things that I think will really Really help a lot of people to listen to this show. So we're excited for it. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for Sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest was one of Cressy Sports Performance's original high school athletes when we opened in 2007. He went on to play baseball at Stanford University, where he received a bachelor's in economics and sociology and a master's in public policy. During his time at Stanford, he helped lead the baseball team to two NCAA Super Regional appearances, was a two-time Pac-12 All-Academic Team honoree, and twice received the Bruce Cameron Memorial Award for Excellence in Academics, Athletics, and Leadership. Since his graduation, he's become a Vice President at Altamont Capital Partners, a generalist investment fund with over $2.5 billion in capital under management. There, he focused on investments in the consumer products and services sector. Outside of Altamont, he serves as an advisor to a number of startups and small businesses and is an active angel investor in early-stage consumer and consumer technology companies. In his free time, he's built a platform focused on financial education and literacy on Twitter, where he writes and releases threads aimed at demystifying the world of finance, money, business, and economics. Please welcome to the show, Sahil Bloom. Welcome to the show, Sahil. 
Thanks so much for having me, Eric. It's a real pleasure. I am excited to do this. And um, we were kind of joking offline before we started that this could be our best episode ever. And it could be a complete dumpster fire that people don't like. But I feel like we'll draw some value some, somewhere in here. <laughs> yeah, I definitely hope it's a good one. Yeah. I, uh, you know, we go a long way back. So I'm excited yeah. to reflect on some of this. There'll be some good stories. And I think, you know, we, we always talk to, you know, current professional players, retired players. We talk about, you know, college coaches that come on or sports scientists or mental skills coach, all these different things, orthopedic surgeons and, you know, and, and stuff like that. And I, I think what we've missed as we've done all these episodes over the course of time is an opportunity to kind of reflect on what just the process of baseball development or really, you know, any sport development can mean for someone in the years that followed. So, you know, cool story about you is, you know, you started up after your freshman year or sophomore year. I'm trying to remember. Sophomore was, year. Yeah, it was after sophomore. It was 2007. Um, and it was, you know, right before Cressy Sports Performance opened. So you can speak to, you know, kind of high school development, what strength conditioning meant to you, what the culture meant to you, obviously playing Division One baseball. But I think probably even more intriguing is, is what the lessons are from all that preparation, all that competition that you use today, you know, in a, in a, you know, a successful working world life. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm excited to touch on some of this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. A lot of lessons learned and a lot of hard failures along the way. That's, that's the key. Um, so I, I think maybe the place to start is, um, you know, we talk about your baseball history, you know, where were you when we met, you know, and then, you know, talk maybe about the story of how it evolved, um, to get you to Stanford. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, when we first met, I think I was a uh, probably about five foot ten inch. I don't know, one hundred sixty pounds, soaking wet, uh, sophomore in high school. I mean, I I had always been a baseball player. I had played my whole childhood, like like most kids that are that are listening to this. Um, had had you know a modest level of success. Um, my parents had supported me. I had taken lessons along the way, played on some good teams, but in terms of actually reaching my full potential, I had no idea um, how to go about that. Uh, you know, I, I thought I knew how to prepare and throw and uh, I'd go to the gym and do some bench presses with my friends or something every now and then, but there was absolutely no strategy or concerted effort around it. Mm -hmm. And so when I met you, uh, that was really a turning point and an inflection point in my career and in my life in the sense that it was the first time where I had really brought structure and strategy to a set of goals. I, I knew what I wanted to go do, but I didn't know how to go do it. Uh, and, and that applied to both baseball and, and life and academics. And, and I think, you know, when I met you, that was really a, a, a switch in my brain uh, where I realized there is so much to this if you really want to go after it. Uh, so much that you don't understand that you need to outsource uh, to experts and that you need to really buy into if you want to go after something. Do you think that um, that was the, you, was that the perfect time for you? You know, cause I think I, I actually literally got an email this morning from someone about like, Hey, we want to get our, our nine year old in with you. And obviously, you know, after sophomore years, a, a market difference from that. Do you think you would have been ready for that level of kind of organization, attention to detail, you know, two years earlier, or, you know, or do you think that that was the perfect time for you and it's different for everybody else? I think it's different for everybody, uh, but I think you gotta let kids be kids at some point, man. I, I I see so many people now, and maybe this offends some people, but uh, I see so many people now that have their eight-year-olds, uh, you know, diving into some crazy regimen and 365 days a year, and it's all baseball. And to me, so much of my childhood and maturing was around being a kid, like getting to play with your friends, getting to play different sports, getting to do different things, failing at different things. Uh, that was so much of what development looked like for me and what allowed me to mature to the point where I was ready then as a 16-year-old to really focus and commit myself to one thing. But without that development process and without letting that kind of entropy, like that chaos theory, uh, work through itself, I, I think it's really hard to prepare a kid for the, for the struggles that do come from uh, that period of focus. Mm -hmm. Speaking of, uh, of maturity, you have to tell the story about your first day. <laughs> How, well, uh, let, let me preface it by just saying that I hope the statute of limitations <laughs> is up in, uh, in Weston. So my, um, my, my first day at, I guess it wasn't even Cressy Performance then. It was Aaron Cressy training out of a, uh, a random facility in a neighboring town. Um, I had gotten connected with you and wanted to go in and train. I, I was a 
And I still, to this day, am a just laser focused person where when I get my mind set on something, I'm just going to go do it. And there was nothing stopping me. And so I got connected with you. I wanted to go in and train. Problem was, A, didn't have a license, driver's license. Uh, B, my parents were out of town. And the only person at home was my then 80 plus year old grandmother from India who could not drive a car in the United States. Um, and you, you were, I don't know, 10 miles away or so. And so, you know, the, the really gritty story would have been that I walked 10 miles each way to get to your gym. <laughs> the slightly illegal story is that I got into my uh, parents' car without a license and drove uh, to your facility and got my training session in. Uh, and, and never mentioned it to my parents, actually. It came out several years later that this was the genesis story of my training with you, which turned out to be you know, the start of the best investment I think I've ever made in my life. I feel like you got to say, tell your parents I told you so, you know, like they, they didn't know you did it, but you, you made the call. And yeah. And it got worse because I did actually swipe uh, my mom's credit card for a full month of training with you that same day, um, oh which goodness. I actually don't know that she knows that to this day. So, oh. so sorry, mom, if you're listening. Well, the good news, I have Lakshmi Bloom is one of our favorite, uh, favorite Lakshmi and David both are some of our favorite parents in CSB history. And now she's, she's great friends with my wife they go out to, to dinner together so you're you you worked out in the end that's the most i think i think thing. she would agree that the investment worked out for the best <laughs> so i'm curious so um one of the things that i i remember distinctly of you is you you were a guy who you were a strike thrower like you i, m- I remember there was some you know story about like a 57 pitch complete game or something <laughs> like that um but you were also crazy loose you were a really hyper mobile guy um and what, what was intriguing about seeing you start up was just how quickly results happened and, and looking back, there were a lot of things that I would do markedly different, you know, here 14 years later in terms of exercise selection and, you know, how we manage really hypermobile people. But what was intriguing to me was just how quickly a little bit of strength in the right places changed you. So talk about like just how the, the velo changed maybe in that first, you know, year or two and, and what it meant for you, both in terms of how you performed on the mound, but also what it meant for your, your ability to, to commit early. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So before meeting you to set the stage, uh, I I had had a sophomore year where I had received a lot of accolades, um, had had a great year. I think I was 8-0 or something like that. Um, You know, admittedly, Massachusetts high school baseball, but had had a great year as a sophomore. But I was throwing call it 78 to 80 miles an hour. Um, like you said, I was a strike thrower. I might have walked a couple of guys that entire year. Didn't really strike anyone out. But I just, I located really well. I was kind of always a two-seamer sinker guy. Um, And at the time, my whole vision was I want to go stretch and try to play in the Ivy Leagues. That that was just my goal. I was like, my dad's a professor at Harvard. I had, you know, visions of maybe potentially getting to someday play in the Ivy Leagues. And, And my velocity trajectory, you know, it seemed like maybe if I kept growing and putting on a little bit more size, I might be able to get to being, you know, a mid 80s right hander with good location and good off speed stuff and do that. Um, you know, fast forward, uh, after a couple months of training with you, I want to say it was, it was honestly six months from, Mm -hmm. from the time I first started training with you that summer of 2007. Um, and I went to a showcase, uh, down in Florida and hit 92 miles an hour on, on a radar gun. And it it was this massive, just transformational experience for me, because frankly, it was just a lot of structure and a little bit of intelligent design by you, right? I I mean, we brought a lot of structure and a whole hell of a lot of effort, I will say. Um, But it was amazing to me just what a little bit of of, uh, intelligent design, effort, energy, uh, in the right places could do and how much it changed my trajectory and my, my career as a baseball player. And you know what I think is actually really important, uh, maybe as a discussion point to this. So I knew we were going to be talking about this, and and I was actually really intrigued to go back and and look at some of the timelines on this. And what was interesting is, so you go, you know, going from eighty to ninety two in in six months with just intelligent training. But what was the most intriguing to me was that I went back in my history, and the first throwing program. I ever gave to you actually started November 30th of the following year. So we started up right after Thanksgiving. So that was what it speaks to is that was a strength conditioning game. Like there really wasn't an organized throwing program. And what was probably even more significant is that was 2007, 2008. Like not everybody threw 92. That was a big deal. If you threw 92 as a Massachusetts high school righty and it immediately put you on your map. But 
I, I just see so many guys who at that age, they're, they're selling out for the crazy weighted ball program or they're trying to throw 350, you know, every single day in long toss. It was pretty fundamental, basic stuff that, that, that showed that big increase. And then we got sexier in the, you know, in the years that followed with more of the throwing program and stuff like that. But just, you don't want to, you don't want to study calculus until you've done algebra first. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I, I think of it now, it's like a first principles approach to uh, your career as a baseball player. It's like b- build the foundation first, the foundational truths of what you need. And, and that's what we did. I mean, we built from the ground up. It was, it was hips and legs, right? We, you know, we needed to put stability and strength on my lower half. Uh, to allow me to have force and put force into the mound and and put force behind the baseball. I was just a lanky, gangly kid before that. I mean, so you have basically 18 months of consistent training under your belt before we even thought about a weighted ball program. And granted, it wasn't as maybe as sexy in 2008 as it was, you know, now in terms of what's available on social media to see it. But you know, there was something to be said about, you know, verifying that you had a good process and trusting it before you started selling out for it. Like, do you think there are some remarkable parallels just in, you know, in the business world that, you know, that are people are trying to go to the very complex stuff, you know, in the world that you encounter now, as opposed to just, you know, locking in what they should be doing on the very foundational level? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it comes back to this whole idea of like the uh, get rich quick scheme in life, right? There's just no such thing. There's no such thing as the shortcut, the quick path, you know, any, anyone that's selling you like, Oh, buy this and it's five miles an hour, or, you know, do this and you can hit a drive a hundred yards further, do this and you can get better grades. Like it's just BS. Uh, the reality is these things are earned through consistent, focused, intelligent effort. There is no other way to achieve uh, great things in life. It, you can you can maybe for a short period of time have some spike, but the reality is you need to be building a foundation and you need to be compounding. It's built through sheer effort. It compounds over time, just like any financial investment uh, and you know, investments in yourself, investments in your body and your strength, et cetera. As an athlete, as a student, uh, as an investor, as a business person, it, it's all the same. Uh, and there's no shortcuts around any of it. And I think, you know, what was also vitally important is obviously you go out and you hit 92 at a, at a showcase, it opens up your opportunities of, of where you want to go. And, you know, so kind of talk to maybe about where the college process went from there. Yeah, it was a whirlwind, man. Uh, totally fascinating. I mean, I said, I, I was hoping to maybe someday get to go and, and play in the Ivy Leagues. And, you know, I, I hit 92 on a gun. I, I don't know if it was juiced what the deal was. I was probably realistically like an 87, 88 guy mm-hmm. at the time consistently. But suddenly, your whole world is opened. I mean, I remember um, Stanford all of a sudden was on my radar. Um, and someone said, hey, this is possible. My coach in high school, Coach John Beverly, uh, over at Weston High School, um, said, how about Stanford? And it blew my mind that that was possible to think about, you know, I was a kid from Weston, Massachusetts, tiny town, D3 mm-hmm. school, that I could go across the country and play with those guys um, was baffling to me. And I remember that first email I got from from Coach Stotts, who I hope will be listening to this, the, the recruiting coordinator at Stanford, um, saying that he wanted me to come out and visit. I remember the email you got from him after sending him a really nice reference on my behalf. I mean, I had those things pinned up on my board. Um, like it was a dream come true to me at the time. And suddenly, uh, you know, I went to that showcase in December in February, uh, I went with my dad out to visit Stanford. And when I landed off the plane back in, uh, back in Massachusetts, I had an offer from, from Stanford to, uh, to go attend there. And the thing I would, I would say also is, you know, there's a, there's an important kind of aside to all that is it's not just good enough to throw 92 to go to Stanford. You have to be a heck of a student. And like, I think a lot of people miss out on that is that that that's what opens some of those doors is beyond just the fact that you're obviously very talented on a baseball field. Like you had the academic credentials to obviously make it work as well. Yeah. I mean, academics always came first in my family. <laughs> you know this about my yeah. parents, Eric, but yeah. you know, my, my dad's a professor at Harvard. My mom, uh, you know, is a Princeton master's entrepreneur, uh, runs her own business I- academics, you know, and I have an Indian mother, so she always wanted me to be a doctor. I was like the ne'er-do-well son playing baseball. <laughs> um, but academics always came first and fundamentally that was what allowed and, and, you know, led coach Stotts to being comfortable offering me at that early stage was he had seen my, he had seen my grades. He knew I was going to do well on the SATs or well enough. And that allowed me to get in the door early and, and kind of have that, give them that degree of comfort with providing that offer. Absolutely. And what was kind of cool is after that, 
you know, that took place, you know, you, there was a little bit of a kind of like a humbling, right? You know, all of a sudden you become the big man on campus, you're the Stanford commit and you kind of have to go through the next, you know, year and a half or so of, <laughs> of high school and, you know, and, and, and stay focused on your development. So maybe talk about what happened in the, you know, the years that followed there and then, you know, what you experienced when you actually got to Stanford. Yeah, huge humbling. It's, it's a good way of putting it. I mean, first off, baseball, I was terrible my junior year. <laughs> um, I was throwing harder for sure, but uh, I had no idea how to use my body yet and actually pitch. And so the guy that was a great pitcher located multiple pitches, et cetera, as a sophomore, um, I was lost as a junior. I mean, I, I really wasn't very good. I think I went like three and five as a junior. Uh, my velocity was kind of bouncing around as I tried to overthrow, you know, never really got into a rhythm. Even that summer after that played with the new England roughnecks with, uh, with coach Kirk Fredericks, who, um, you know, was an incredible mentor for me as well and had a pretty crummy summer. Just, just wasn't really, uh, you know, wasn't really finding it from a baseball perspective at the time. And it was a humbling experience. And I realized I needed to go back to the drawing board and really retrench, um, heading, heading into my senior year. If I wanted to have good momentum going into freshman year at Stanford. And that was just on the baseball side. Look, I, on a personal, um, from a personal standpoint, I had massive big fish, small pond syndrome. I mean, I went to a small high school. I thought I was uh, the best thing since sliced bread. All of a sudden I had a, had a scholarship to Stanford, hadn't even had to apply. In my mind, I was just like, man, thinking I was so awesome. And, and the reality in hindsight, you know, with the benefit of hindsight was it just, it, it led me to be a person um, that I didn't want to be. Um, you you want to be a good teammate. You want to be, um, you know, a good, a good brother, a good peer uh, to your classmates, be, you know, a citizen that, that uh, others can be proud of. And I, I just don't feel um, I embodied the values that I really stand behind today. Um, it was all part of my maturation process. And now I can look back and say, I really grew up as a result of that. Um, but, uh, but it's something to be really cognizant of as you go through these great successes early in your career. Uh, just make sure that you're, you know, staying true to who you feel like you are as a person. I think one of the things that actually happened, um, you were at 09 high school grad, grad, correct? I'm trying to yeah, get that's right. back in the years. So one of the things that happened, so when, when you first started up with us, obviously we were, um, we weren't even crisis sports performance. We opened that in July of, of 2007. So you're one of our, obviously our first clients from day one. And nine months later, we moved to a new facility in, in 2008. So that the 2008-2009 offseason was really when our pro crowd took off. You yep. know, we had some in previous years, but that was the first year where you saw guys who were moving from around the country. You know, Schilling was in that, that winter to, to do his shoulder rehab. So some of our minor league guys got to interact with, with a big leaguer and, you know, you rubbed elbows with a lot of those pro guys. And I often joke, you, you, you spent your ages 17 and 18 years around pro baseball players. Do you think that was some of the stuff that helped you write the ship just going from, you know, that, that junior year that was maybe not spectacular to the senior year where you, you started to, to correct a little bit to repair for making it at Stanford? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, your environment is everything. Um, and you know, this, when you surround yourself with the best, uh, you improve naturally. That, that's, that's how you grow as a person. And for me, it was both humbling being around those people, but also showed me how to carry myself and how I wanted to act, uh, how I wanted to go about my business. Um, I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, I think the first pro guy that ever made an appearance, Steve Hammond, yeah. um, you know, was like a lefty 95 guy. Uh, I didn't know who he was. Right. So I saw this guy who was, um, definitely fit, but there were a lot of fit guys that came into the facility. And so I, I heard him talking baseball and I thought I was this, you know, hot, you know, hot, hot kid, like get, you know, had the Stanford scholarship, whatever. And so I said something kind of trying to act cool to him, like, Oh, you play baseball. And he looked me straight in the face and said, uh, no, I play tennis. I just throw 95 on the side. <laughs> and I, I remember just being like, man, kicking the nuts right there. Like that, that is how you get humbled as a 17 year old when you thought you were cool trying to talk to this guy. I mean, this was like a triple A. I think he was in big league camp that year, play, yep. you know, pitching alongside Ben Sheets. Yeah. So, um, th those kind of moments I think were foundational for, um, you know, just the, the humbling experience. And then also just learning how these guys go about their business, both from a training throwing, and then also from a life perspective. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's also a cool melding pot. I mean, you think about those guys, you know, we'd, you know, high school drafts from Virginia and Ohio, you had, you had Tim Collins, who's from, you know, from Worcester, and then you would get guys from, from all over creation, different backgrounds. And it, you know, it kind of prepares you for the diversity that you're going to get in, 
you know, not just in college baseball or in pro baseball, but, but obviously going into the working world as well. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, look, those are some of my best friends in the world. Yeah. Uh, I still, to this day, on a daily basis, am in text threads with Tim Collins, Chad Rogers, Will Inman, yeah. Matt Blake, you know, the pitching coach of the Yankees now. Yeah. Uh, it, like, th- these are some of my best friends. Those relationships mm-hmm. that we built sitting around, training, throwing, all of those things, uh, the good times and the bad when your arm was hurting or when you were feeling great, like those were relationships that lasted forever. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm so happy about that, that I had that foundation building experience. How did it, uh, how did things change when you went to Stanford? Um, would be a question I have for you. Yeah, well, my, my first year at Stanford, I would define as another humbling experience. Um, mm-hmm. And I know it seems like now those are building up for me. <laughs> it's probably a common theme in terms of um, what's built me to where I am today. But mm-hmm. my first year at Stanford, um, I kind of got to campus uh, again, got there the first day, practice in class. And what I learned was, damn, you're not that smart. Like you go to class and everyone's smarter than you. <laughs> and, uh, and damn, you're not that good at baseball. Go to practice. And you know, I show up my freshman year and we've got Mark Appel um, was in my class who ended up being the first overall pick in the draft. Um, we've got Chris Reed who ended up being a first rounder. We've got uh, Brett Mooneyham who was incredible all world at the time. Uh, Steven Piscotty, who's playing in the bigs now and was a pitcher and a hitter. I mean, I came out and I was like, oh my God, I, I have no business being here. Um, and I just remember having this kind of uh, transformational experience of realizing, okay, this is going to be a lot of work. Um, you know, you're not as talented as these people, just plain and simple. And, and you got to just come to terms with it at some point. But both from an academic and an athletic standpoint, by the way, you're just going to have to outwork people. Um, and it's going to be hard and it's going to be a long path. Um, but that is your only path to success. Um, and that, that was foundational for me. And it was foundation building for my whole life, my whole career. Um, everything I've done since was that immediate humbling experience right when I got to campus as a freshman. And you, you challenge yourself both academically and athletically, I'd say, you know, not just in college, but even in high school beforehand, what are some strategies that, you know, because we get a lot of like parents and kids that are listening to this. And there are a lot of guys that are going to be on this podcast who are heading off to a division one program or a division, anything program in the next year. And they have no clue what's about to get them from a, a time management standpoint. Like, do you have strategies in terms of how to prioritize things, how to tune out distractions? What were things that really worked for you, you know, at Stanford that you've carried forward into your life after the fact? Yeah. You always hear the saying that there are three aspects of college as a student athlete, the uh, the academics, the athletics, and the social, and you can only pick two. Mm -hmm. Um, And I always thought it was a little bit cynical, but I do think it's true. Um, you really need to prioritize two. And for me, and obviously what I recommend is it's athletics and it's academics. And the social to me solves itself. You have a team, you have this incredible group of people around you that you're so close with that you're spending 20 to 40 hours a week with maybe more. Um, and so you have the social, it, it's there and, and you can build upon it. And those relationships last forever. My teammates from, from Stanford are some of my best friends in the world, groomsmen at my wedding. It, you're not going to, you're not going to lose that. That is foundational for your social experience. So focus on the other two, focus on athletics, focus on academics and being the best you can in those realms. Um, the academic side, when you're focusing, uh, when you're choosing your major, when you're uh, going into classes, just be thinking about what are you really passionate about? What do you, what do you want to learn? What are you trying to go down a rabbit hole on academically? Um, don't just go into things to try to go through the motions and go through the process from an academic standpoint. It is so important that you develop interests and actual skills while you're in college um, that, that will serve you for the rest of your life. Because frankly, even the guys that end up going and playing professionally that go make it to the majors, they are all going to have careers <laughs> after baseball. I mean, the number of guys you can count on one hand um, yeah. that, that are going to make enough money that they're never going to have to work again. I mean, uh, S- Steven Piscotti is going to have made 30, 40, $50 million in his career. He and I talk every day about what he's going to do and the type of work he wants to do after he's done with baseball. Uh, There is always going to be a life after it. Zach Ertz was one of my good friends and a classmate at Stanford. He's the tight end for the Eagles now. He's going to make 80 to $100 million playing football. Um, And he constantly is thinking about his business career and what he wants to work on after football because he's going to be 30, 
five when he gets done. And there's a massive long life after that. Mm -hmm. So focus on it, be passionate about it um, and go after it with that same energy that you're going after your, your athletic pursuits. When, um, when you look back on, and, and you had five years at Stanford um, in light of kind of like a, a freak fin, finger injury, I know you're, you're senior. Talk about kind of how things progress, both in terms of your development over the five years, but also, you know, just how much you were able to actually pitch over yeah. that time period. Yeah. So my freshman year, I mentioned it was, was a little more challenging and, and just in the sense that I had to figure out what kind of pitcher I was going to be in college. Um, you know, I wasn't going to be the power guy that I was, uh, in high school in Massachusetts division three baseball. I had to kind of redefine how I pitched and the coaches, coach Rusty filter, coach Mark Marquez, our head coach, um, really kind of forced me to, to rethink and, and, and really pitch backwards, frankly. Um, and it developed a lot of skills as, as a pitcher. And late in that freshman year, I started getting into games a lot more. Um, and I think I actually ended up, uh, not giving up a run that year. I must've thrown, I don't know, six or seven innings across six or seven appearances had a win. So like got a little taste of success that got me excited for my sophomore year. And I came back sophomore year, um, and was fired up, was in great shape. Um, and really had, had a great fall and a great start to the spring, had one bad outing um, in intra-squads leading into the start of the year and did not see the field for the first two months of that season. Um, and college baseball is like that. I, I, I mean, it's tough. If you're on a competitive roster um, and I had made the decision to go to Stanford over going and trying to be an ace at Harvard or Columbia or Princeton or one of these other places, I you know pushed myself in terms of um, the caliber of baseball that, that I thought I was capable of playing. And that's what happens. Uh, you know, I was probably the 10th guy, uh, the 10th pitcher. And so you don't throw much at first. Late in that season, I broke through and was like one of our go-to guys out of the bullpen heading down the stretch and ended up uh, pitching in regionals, pitching in super regionals at North Carolina. Um, and that really propelled me into what ended up being uh, an awesome junior year. Um, I had a great summer that summer. Uh, and then junior year, uh, I think I ended up throwing the most innings out of the bullpen, uh, had a number of saves, closed the regional championship game on ESPN, uh, and then famously gave up a grand slam the week yes. later on, uh, <laughs> on ESPN to lose super regionals. <laughs> I mean, you gotta, you gotta take a bad with the good. That's the rule. You know, we, we yeah, just... exactly. I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a metaphor for life, right? Uh, the, yeah. the highest high, um, the week before, you know, close the regional championship, slow clap, like Andrew Luck, you know, in the stands, the, the whole thing. I mean, it was incredible. My dad was there. It was like one of those moments you never forget to a week later, uh, crying on national television because you give up a grand slam to lose uh, to Florida State and have to watch them dogpile uh, to go to Omaha, you know, cr crushing your dreams. It's like the absolute metaphor for life, the, the highest highs and the lowest lows, and you have to find a way to grind through it all. It's the baseball gods. And, and so I'm curious, after that, I, I know there was, um, obviously there was like a, there was a finger injury. What happened the following year? I refresh my memory. <laughs> yeah, so I came back senior year, um, I, uh, I had already gotten accepted to a master's program um, at Stanford that I was going to uh, pursue in a fifth year, whether or not I was playing baseball professionally. Um, but I came back from my senior year and was on course to continue on the trajectory that I had um, from my junior year. I'd been throwing really well. I was going to be one of our key guys. Um, I pitched on opening night uh, down at Rice University my senior year. And later that night, I was unwrapping a glass in the hotel room in order to take one of the fish oil pills um, <laughs> that, that I was uh, taking at the time. And I dropped the glass, uh, it shattered, and I cut my finger open um, on my throwing hands. And you know, to this day, no one believes me when I tell this story, by the way. Everyone assumes <laughs> I was like out drinking or something. You know me, Eric. Yep. I, I was not. <laughs> I, I was really focused on recovering. Uh, you know, Friday night I had pitched. I was trying to get ready for the next day. Um, and, uh, and it was an unfortunate accident, total freak accident, but I ended up having to go get a bunch of stitches. And then it turned out that I had nicked a nerve in my hand and had some recurring issues from it and had to get surgery. So m missed my whole, um, missed my whole senior year. And then frankly, kind of derailed, um, derailed the later, uh, the later opportunities from a fifth year perspective. It never, never really came back. But the, the important message there is the work ethic that had been, develop the attention to detail like the and none of that the just the you know the demeanor uh, that you had established on campus really set you up for you know some powerful things in that fifth year so talked about like what that meant for your career and where it, where it kind of went after you graduated 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, by the time I had that injury, I had known that I probably wasn't going to be making a living off of baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought maybe I could go get a cup of coffee somewhere, or get someone to yeah. pay me a cheeseburger and a plane ticket, come, yeah. come play a season of minor league baseball. But I knew I wasn't going to be making a living off of it. Um, and so when it happened, I, I kind of just took it as a sign from the universe. Like, you know, you're, you're ready to move on to what the next thing, next thing is, whatever that might be. Um, and I realized, you know, what I felt worse about, by the way, was, um, telling my dad that I was ready to hang it up. That was the hardest conversation I had. And not because he put a ton of pressure on me, but just because it was something that had brought us together for so long in my life, this, this baseball career. I mean, he had been there for all of those moments along the way. And I still frankly get choked up thinking about calling him, uh, to let him know that I was, that I was planning to hang it up. Um, but just, a, you know, just an unfortunate experience, but, one of those moments that you then later realize opened up all of these other doors. And to your point, um, again, it comes back to just opening your eyes to all the opportunities around you. Um, I was fundamentally, (laughs) I was at Stanford university as one of the best institutions in the world. One of the most incredible places in the middle of Silicon Valley with all these unbelievable people building incredible things. And so I just realized like this baseball door is closed. Um, but all of these new doors have opened. And so how are you going to take advantage of it? And what is the new thing that you are going to dedicate all of that energy that you've applied to baseball and your training and your focus and nutrition and all of the aspects of it? What is the new thing that I'm going to dive in that I'm going to go down the rabbit hole on? Um, and that was really what I set out to do next. That's awesome. And you know, I think there's something to be said too. I mean, I, I feel like every day I would wake up with like a new text message of like, Oh, Governor Rick Perry came through the office. Hillary Clinton was here today. Condoleezza Rice is my my advisor. It was like a very regular thing. And it was, I always, you know, just looked at it as like, how much did just your experiences in baseball, you know, just prepare you to meet people from all different walks of life, all different political parties, um, you know, all different, you know, ethnicities, you know, all that different things. It just seemed like it prepared you for whatever life threw at you. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you use what you have, right? Mm-hmm. I, um, people love sports at the end of the day people love talking about sports mm-hmm. and so use it I, I mean people love talking baseball you, you use the example of uh condoleezza rice or, or governor rick perry um I was fortunate enough to uh, convince uh, Dr. Rice to be my advisor for my master's when I was there. And a big part of that was she was a huge supporter of the athletic programs. And um, that was an opportunity. It had my foot in the door to have that. And because of her, I was allowed to meet all of these other incredible people that were coming through the doors at Stanford and able to absorb their, their teachings, be around them. Uh, You just learn so much from being around smart people. Um, But the point of all that is like, Use what you have. I, I mean, I, I don't think I've gone in seven years to a single meeting uh, in the quote unquote real world where the fact that I played baseball at Stanford hasn't come up, mm-hmm. um, where someone isn't a fan of some baseball team that I know a guy that's playing on. Mm-hmm. Like those attributes make you stand out for the rest of your life. And so whether baseball works out quote unquote or not for you, there's so much that you derive from it that is directly valuable to the rest of your life. Not just the learnings and lessons and all of that, which I think are unbelievably powerful, but also really just directly being able to leverage those experiences you had, the people you know, the relationships, the teammates, et cetera, um, to really drive value for the rest of your life. I think people, you know, they tune into this podcast and think it's all about like developing a better swing or getting stronger so that you can brace into your front leg with your pitching delivery or something like that. And, you know, hopefully this is the kind of stuff that makes them realize that, you know, in many ways, the baseball is a, it's an avenue through which you can accomplish a lot of, of great things in different places, um, you know, by a college education, all that. So I'm curious, what are the vital lessons that you learned from the strength and conditioning aspect of it? Like, where did that specifically, you know, kind of change the way that you went about your business and, you know, in life after college? I think it's the power of compounding um, is the number one lesson that I learned uh, early in its earliest sense. I learned about compounding from our training. Um, And that's just the idea that every day you're building upon the foundation that you built the day before and you're not starting from the ground. You're starting from what you built. And that is unbelievably powerful uh, because as it goes, it's, it becomes exponential. You're suddenly building on this base where 
uh, it's much larger than what it was before. And it goes for strength and conditioning uh, in the early days. And later in life, it goes for your investments. It goes for the knowledge that you're building in the classroom and then in your working career. It goes for relationships. You're building upon the base of trust that you've already built. Um, and that foundational principle applies to everything I do in life now. Um, and I learned it first and foremost with, with the iron in, in your gym and, and, uh, and in the training that we put forward. Nice. What about the actual like, baseball side of things? How have, they, um, how have those lessons, or which lessons have carried over to, to help you thereafter? There's probably a bunch. I, I mean, one, um, dealing with failure. Baseball is a sport of failure. We, we all joke about, you know, you, you're great if you fail seven out of 10 times uh, as a hitter. As a pitcher, uh, you just, you fail a whole heck of a lot and you remember the failures a lot more than the successes. And it is such, uh, it is such a key part of life being able to embrace, learn from, and bounce back from failure. I see so many kids now, uh, analysts, people coming into the working world, kids starting out that don't know how to deal with failure. Um, they're inherently uh, fragile or um, unable, you know, not, not resilient. And baseball teaches you a level of resilience. Sports teach you a level of resilience mm -hmm. that is very, very hard to learn elsewhere. And it is so critical to your life and success. Um, you know, it's about being able to... Uh, one of my favorite books is anti-fragile and it's all about um, benefiting from chaos. Um, you know, being the type of person where chaos, um, failure, it actually makes you stronger and makes you better. And baseball teaches you that you, you learn to embrace your failures, learn from it. What did I do wrong? What was wrong with that one pitch? What was the sequence? Um, why did I not prepare well enough to succeed there? You learn from that and it makes you better. And that, that teaching, that anti-fragility, that resilience, um, it's hard to learn elsewhere. But if you have it, you can be unbelievably successful. It is like a cheat code for the rest of your life. And we need to make sure that, you know, we reiterate to parents, to coaches, like failure is great. You know, our, our job as coaches, to be honest, is, is to set people up for, you know, places where they can fail safely. You know, I mean, we're not going to put 500 pounds on their back and tell them to squat on their first day. But we are going to put them in situations where, you know, they have to struggle both acutely, maybe from like a murder learning standpoint, or a little bit more chronically where they have to realize, hey, I, I got my butt handed to me today on the mound because my pregame routine was bad. I didn't do the scouting reports I needed to do there. And, and I think often too many people are really sheltered from, from actually having to struggle. Is, have you seen that also even in the, you know, the people that you've sometimes worked with after you got out of school? Yeah, absolutely. I, and you can tell right away. It, uh, you know, it jumps out immediately when, uh, when someone hasn't had to deal with failure, when someone hasn't been uh, criticized or, uh, or coached in a way around a failure. Um, and it's hard to work with. Uh, it, it's hard to work with throughout life. And go, go talk to 10 really successful people that you, that you respect and ask them about the turning points in their life and in their career. I guarantee you they point to failures, uh, th things that were bad uh, in their life, failures that occurred that led them to growth, um, that they learned from and that drove them towards a growth or a transformational moment. Um, it's not the successes. We all love to have those. We love to feel good, pat ourselves on the back, but it is the failures and the moments where we were allowed to fail, uh, that actually lead to that growth and success. Absolutely. Well, hindsight is always twenty twenty, and we've we've talked about all the lessons learned. But what are some of the things you would actually have done differently, you know, along your path if you look back on it? Number one, I wish I had just been a nicer person all yeah. along the way. Um, you know, and I say that uh, it, with with all humility now, and you know, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, I just don't feel like I was a nice person for for a lot of years of my life, and I feel. I feel ashamed of it, um, to be totally honest. And I, I wish it wasn't the case. I've learned a lot from it. And, um, you know, I, I like the person I am today and uh, would like to think that I do right by people. Um, but I just don't think I was, uh, I just don't think I was true to myself for a number of years. And it was partially, I was struggling with uh, insecurity and my own uh, mental health issues as we all struggle with. But, um, you know, just be a good person. <laughs> Fundamentally, I, I, I wish I could change that uh, along the way. Um, uh, other things, um, you know, I wish, I, I just wish I had, um, you know, people that kind of 
guided me around some of the things that I'm able to tell kids today around college. I, I wish there were more structures set up from a college athletic standpoint that guided you around these things that gave you mentors in the working world. Um, not just mentors in the, in the sports world. I mean, we had tons of, uh, former pro players that would come back and train in the off season. And so everyone had mentors around that. You, you knew about all the pro guys that would come back, the Carlos Quintons and whoever it was at Stanford that would come back and have their big league stories. And it was so cool, but you didn't have mentors to look up to that had had a great college career and then went on to amazing jobs in the real world and were crushing it uh, in business or investing or whatever that was. I wish there were structures in place in college that allowed that. It's something that, frankly, I would love to get involved with and try to set up because I think it's going to be a powerful thing when you do it. Um, but, uh, but that would be number two. And number three, you know, I wish there were structures set up around teams uh, in college that allowed people to be more open and talk about mental health. Um, as a problem. I, I find locker rooms in general, uh, especially with male athletes, uh, it's not an environment where people are comfortable talking about uh, things they're dealing with. And now looking back on it, um, I have so many teammates who you would know their names. I mean, they're unbelievably successful professional players now who openly admit that they struggled with depression or other issues while in college. Uh, mm -hmm. The stressors of that life are difficult. Yeah. And so I would just, looking back and talking to my younger self, um, talk to your friends, talk about those kind of things, talk to each other, lend a helping hand when someone's down, don't just assume they're being soft, uh, you know, be there for each other in that way. Uh, and, and it builds powerful bonds. It builds powerful, powerful relationships. And you, you just never know what's going on, uh, behind someone's eyes. I love that. Um, so we always wrap up with a lightning round. Um, so okay. these are, these can go in a million different directions. So I know you're a voracious reader. Give me a book recommendation that you think any high school kid on this call who dreams of playing at a Stanford, a Vanderbilt, a, a Virginia, Boston College, whatever it is, should read. Anti-Fragile. I mentioned it before. Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. All right. And elaborate. Give me a, give me a why. What, what is it? It's an incredible – it is totally foundational book about um, – you know, uh, about that exact idea of being resilient, being mm -hmm. someone that benefits from chaos. And it mm -hmm. applies to life. It applies to sports. It applies to your future career and work. Nice. Um, it applies to everything. It, it's incredibly foundational. Give me a bit of advice for a high school coach who has a very talented prospect that he wants to keep grounded and continue to help him, you know, develop, even though he is the, the big fish in a small pond. Let them fail. Yeah. Uh, do not take them out of that situation when they're against the ropes, uh, when they look like they're a little broken, you know, assuming the pitch count's not getting too high. Um, you know, let, 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 let them experience failure in, uh, in high school. I, it can only benefit a young person to experience that. Nice. And then, uh, as maybe a, a parallel to that, what about advice for the actual parents, you know, independent of the coaches, what can you do to, to, you know, or maybe even direct it to the parents and the kids for that, that stud high school player that wants to take it to the next level. I think it's all about, and I'm not a parent yet, so I know it's easier said than done, but it, it's all about, again, support and nurture, be there. Um, but don't insulate, do, mm -hmm. do, do not insulate your child. Um, from those type of failures that are foundational to who they are. Um, you know, be there for them uh, to support them when they're upset after the, after the failures. Um, but don't protect them from it. Um, oh. Protecting them incidentally is the worst thing you can do in terms of allowing for their development where you want them to, to fundamentally get to. Like it. All right. Now this is one I'm, I'm almost terrified to hear the answer. So favorite CSP moment. Oh God. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's way too many to think about. I, uh, so many of my favorite moments at CSP were literally just sitting in the office with all you guys and just, um, sitting around with the guys and talking. I mean, we used to spend eight hours a day in mm -hmm. there, um, just sitting there and chatting. Uh, and those are my favorite moments. I mean, it was just joking around with the guys and uh, me as a 16, 17 year old feeling like I was one of the guys with these, uh, you know, with these pro athletes and with Pete and you and Matt Blake in the early years. I mean, th those were my favorite moments. I don't know if I could point to one. I love that. All right. So now you got to tell us like you're a Twitter superstar now. So tell, <laughs> tell us, tell us what you do for your day job and then maybe speak to uh, what's, what's taking place in the social media world because you've built a really cool presence that I, that I actually really enjoy following. 
Yeah. So, so my day job, I, uh, I'm an investor. So I, uh, I co-lead uh, the consumer investment practice for a private equity fund in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I sit on the board at a number of cool companies, um, Fox Racing, which is like a motocross and mountain bike business, uh, Brixton, which is like a streetwear and lifestyle business. And I'm an angel investor in a number of early stage companies. Um, actually alongside, uh, alongside you and some, yeah. some cool things like Proteus motion, yeah. uh, shout out to Absolutely. us Sam Miller there. Um, yeah. but, uh, but that, that's kind of my day job. I, I, I invest, build businesses, work with management teams to, uh, to grow these businesses. Um, outside of that, I, I'm deeply passionate about education. I always have been something I really care about. Uh, and so earlier this year, I, uh, I took to Twitter uh, and started building a little bit of a platform around financial education, financial literacy, basically under the premise that um, these are topics that are often jargon heavy, that go over people's heads, um, but that people fundamentally want to understand and should understand because it's impactful for their life. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I started using Twitter to simplify financial concepts for people effectively, um, originally for 500 followers, now for... I don't know, 120,000 followers, which feels insane. Um, but it's been a really cool process. You know, I've uh, been fortunate enough to go on CNBC and do some work with them, a few other education organizations. Um, and it's only been eight or nine months. Um, so your guess is as good as mine where it ends up going. But I, yeah. I feel very fortunate for all of it. It's a very cool stuff. I definitely encourage folks to follow you. It's at Sahil, S-A-H-I-L Bloom um, on Twitter. Uh, always good stuff. Hopefully something that, that benefits not just, you know, parents and kids, but also I think some of the points you made on mental health in the college world, um, you know, particularly nowadays are, are, are very, very compelling and hopefully it, you know, affects some changes in the right places. Uh, it's really good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a pleasure chatting. And if anyone wants to reach out to me for personal advice, I'm always around, always happy to mentor young student athletes as they go on their own journey. So feel free to reach out to me. I'm at Sahil Bloom on Twitter. Uh, I'm happy to send you my email address as well. That's awesome. Thanks for taking the time, man. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, We'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.